How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. I'm not sure that today's guest needs too much of an introduction, but for fear of having pigeonholed her into being just one or two things in your mind of the myriad that she in fact does, I'm just going to do a really quick summary. Sarah Wilson is with me today and is indeed a polyjobist. That is a word that my brother and I use a lot and Sarah definitely should carry that title. Um, Rising to the fore through her I Quit Sugar Days with books and programs, She then moved on, but not before donating the absolute lot from I Quit Sugar. And she's now using her profile to activate climate engagement. She runs the Wild podcast, get that in your ears if you haven't already, has written a myriad of books, the latest of which is This Wild and Precious Life. She's been a women's magazine editor, host of MasterChef. I didn't know that before researching. (laughs) Clearly I don't watch television. Relentless campaigner for all of us to take agency for our lives, which is probably one of my favourite parts of the things that you do. And she has won Entrepreneur of the Year awards, has been listed as one of the top 100 most influential health experts. The list really does go on. And actually, I did read somewhere that you said that given all that you have going on, many of us, no, given all that we all have going on, many of us are in a state of spiritual PTSD. And I do want to unpack that when we're chatting. But for a conversation that I think might just go in any direction, we will do our very best to focus on living like tomorrow matters in a distinctive Sarah spin. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jade. It's always really good to hear somebody read out your bio and then you go, oh, that's right. That's what I meant to be doing. (laughs) I'm like taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) That's who I am. That's my brand. My 11-year-old said to me last week, oh, I couldn't do that. That's not my brand. Speaking of what? And then we all said, what is your brand? She said, oh, my mm, goodness. Animal loving, nature loving, outdoor loving, but not uh, bedroom What are they teaching loving. kids at school? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have um, hoped to have you on this show for quite some time, but um, it wasn't until you, I think you chatted with my brother. And yes. I vaguely heard through my mother that you'd had that conversation. So I sent him a quick text and said, quick, give me the details, connect us both, make this happen. Oh, I'm sorry I had to go through your brother. Um, I think I always think of myself as very contactable. Uh, you know, I'm very um, online present in the sense that there seems to be, you know, I think people could find me. Serial killers could find me um, if they really <laughs> wanted to. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry, but, but here we are. And how wonderful that Bo connected us. It's not a bad conduit. Now, you're not only online present, but you are online very strong. I'd love to ask you about that. You sometimes put things out there that make me think, oh, my God, she's brave. I could never be that brave. And you then stand absolutely fearlessly strong by your words and go for it. Have you been like that all your life? I I actually think I have because I've been thinking about that. It's only in other people's reactions that I realise that what I'm doing is seen as a little unusual or a bit boundary pushing. But I would say, yeah, my dad said recently, um, ah, you know, 
elephant in the room, Sarah will call it, nobody else will, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think I have been like it. I remember I didn't really have many friends at school. I went to a very small country primary school and I was a bit of a loner, you know, um, and I, I would interfere into other people's fights, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was a girl, we didn't have playing equipment, we had... Um, old tractors like farming equipment that the farmers would donate and that's what we played on I'm not joking (laughs) and they they oh my god they would never get away with it at schools today because you know the the, so this girl trapped Monique Burley's foot in the gears of this tractor right and you know I thought I'd come along and heroically save Monique but I had no interest in Monique Burley's welfare but yes I interfered I would and I ended up getting the cane for it um, for interfering. And I was a very well-behaved girl otherwise and it was the only time I got the cane, but um, which is showing my age, right? I was just about <laughs> to say that and I thought, oh, I won't throw her off. But it came out of schools when I was in grade one, so you're just a couple of years older than me, so it does yeah, show you your age. Yeah. This is New South Wales, um, you know, country, um, so we probably got the memo a few years later as well, um, <laughs> the memorandum from the New South Wales Department of Education. That it's no longer appropriate to slap children with hard things. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think as I've got older, certainly, I probably have less fucks to give about it and um, and I think there's also something in oestrogen drop-off. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is something to be said for that. that and Jane Fonda um, has spoken about this. She was like, the great thing about getting older is your oestrogen, you know, profile changes. And we go from caring a ridiculous amount about things to still caring, but we can be more discerning. And she said, you know, 60 is a great time to become an activist, you know, as a woman. Uh, and she certainly, well, she's been an activist all her life. But, yeah, I, I think that there is certainly something, maybe it comes from not having a great deal of friends and therefore I wasn't as caught up in what I can and can't do. And I, and I really did had to forge, have to forge my own path and so it does create a sort of blinkered approach. Mm. I'm not as, I'm certainly aware of what people are thinking but maybe not to the extent where it stops me from doing what I feel needs to be said. But it's a very distinctly Australian thing for women in particular to feel that they can't speak out on these things. You're too much trouble. Oh, oh, you know, here's another woman being complicated and difficult. I don't, I look to um, the people I follow on Instagram and they're predominantly American and mm. You know, there's women all over the shop in the public eye speaking out. And, you know, um, Juliette Lewis, uh, you know, there's Viola Davis. There's there's a whole range of people who are, you know, are really mouthy, women who are mouthy and, and, I, I, and, and also in the UK, in the UK as well. So I, I think that it is distinctly an Australian thing for women to feel that they can't really speak their mind. To curb. Mm. You said before we I hit the big red record button that you often get called intense. Oh, yeah. Talk me through that. Is that something that you strive to be? Is it people's perception? Is it? Oh, I think I am. Um, but I would argue that we need the full colourful array of people out there, right? I don't go up to people who are laid back, which is obviously the dominant um, vibe in this country, and go, you're too laid back, fire up, you know. Um, can you imagine? <laughs> I um, sometimes want to. <laughs> reply to emails. 
Um, talk about something other than salty margaritas and tacos. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it's something, again, that's parochially Australian. You know, we pride ourselves on not caring too much, which I think is really starting to um, not service in any way, you know, we we for many many years, Australia was a very innovative country. I remember in the nineties, we topped the rankings. There's you know these rankings. Mm-hmm. I don't know quite how they filter out, you know, and what the criteria are. But um, Australia was up there, and I think we've dropped to bottom of the rung in terms of the, you know all the OECD countries that we get compared mm-hmm. to. And I, I think it's a direct relation to our economic opulence so in the 90s of course we had the recession we had to have that was our last recession we are the only OECD country that has had uninterrupted economic growth for more than three decades now now there was a small blip during COVID but it was minor Um, and even at the moment with the rest of the world talking about recession you know it looks like Australia will probably skip it and it's mining booms and and lucky country stuff it was either sheep or or the mining and our luck is going to run out but what it means is we've been able to take on this vibe of she'll be right, everything's good, because it has been good, right? Yeah. But at the expense of, well, though those for whom it hasn't been great, minorities, um, you know, we've become a more racist country. I think we've become more bigoted. Um, and um, so that it, it, it's a mask, it's a silencing technique for anyone who puts up their hand and going, actually, it's not so great for me. You know, like, uh, yeah, so the intense thing, I think, is a reaction to that. It's a defensive thing. Like, you're intense, could you just tone it down because the vibe over here is laid back and we would rather not have that boat rocked. Um, so, yeah, I. it's really interesting. I actually just interviewed this incredible uh, writer for The Atlantic, Helen Lewis, who's a bit of a hero of mine, even though she's 12 years younger. I love having younger heroes, but we've reached the age, right, where there's a good chance that's the way it's going to go. Um, but she uh, she's extremely bright and she writes about all kinds of things. She famously interviewed Jordan Peterson for GQ. I don't know if you remember that one, Jade, but she basically slayed him. Um, it's been watched 60 million times and primarily because it's one of the few interviews where Jordan, you know, um, well, she held her own, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were talking about all of this and she's written a book called Difficult Women and she made the point that historically all the gains that have been made by the feminists um, were made by women who were notoriously difficult and intense. They were pains in the asses. They weren't these lovely, you know, sort of easy go- easygoing people who just happened to sort of, you know, persuade with, I don't know, a flutter of the eyelids and a twist of the pearls. Um, they did it by being super noisy and noisy and annoying. So the suffragettes, for instance, and I didn't know this until I read her book, the suffragettes, it was not allowed to, you were not allowed if you were a suffragette to get involved in any other movement. So one of the really famous suffragettes got fired from the movement because she appeared on stage with a woman who was representative of the labor movement you know, back in whenever. Um, so they were they were epically full on, right? And mm-hmm. so she sort of puts that as a reminder that, you know, for women we're not that puritanical, but sometimes you have to be if you want to bloody make it happen. Mm. So the nice girls, you know, you don't win being a nice girl, even though that's the paradigm we're meant to operate in. Mm. Um, and I and I find that inspiring. So I do, I mean, I feel very alone at times in what I do, particularly 
in this country. Um, and I don't mean to go on and on about Australia being um, problematic and backward, but I think we are going to need a, we do need a shake up. And mm, I think everybody's aching that. for it. We're aching to mm. not be the anti-intellectual country down mm. south, you know. And you're the same age as me, roughly. Mm. We grew up, I remember travelling when I was 18, being so proud to be Australian because we'd achieved mm. so much, right? Mm. We won shit. We were at the top of things. We, mm. we were genuinely, um, there was a lot more of an egalitarian spirit and ethos to what we did. Anyway. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I sort of I think about the people in general who have done great things on the planet, who have pushed through things, um, they were invariably difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be difficult to, oh, to that's get your brand, things done. Maybe. We're, we're, yeah. we're, <laughs> I don't know brand? if it's a great one, but, yeah. Um, you and when I introduced you, I had a number of pages that I had to read through to get through that opening spiel. You have done so much and whether that's because you're um, – intense and fiercely individual and fiercely independent and fiercely capable or whether or not um it's because you're a little bit like some others that are a bit similar to you that have very long lists of all of the things in this world that can be done Mm. i would love to understand did you kind of set out to um evolve and meander and and sort of take on the world one challenge at a time chew it up and and move through it or you know is that something that has developed you're asking if I've had a whiteboard and a plan um (laughs) I don't know that I ever imagined you'd have a whiteboard but I feel like ideas might pop up and you think I can bloody do that and so I'm going to yeah, it's not as um, seamless and painless as that. It really is about things that really bother me, bother me, bother me, keep me up at wa- awake at night, and then I start to go down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So sugar, for instance, was something that I knew was an issue that I started to notice, you know, the whole way that the science was being held, withheld, um, big food, this are the parallels with big tobacco, blah, blah, blah. And I just had to keep going. And mm-hmm. it's no secret because I've obviously written a book about this. I was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, you know, that's been, you know, that's been also a bit of a superpower, right? Like mm-hmm. I get obsessions and I and I have to go and really know something and, and I go further and further and further. So um, and then once I've done it, and this is what happened with I Quit Sugar, I did all the research. I created the messaging that I thought could get through to people at the right angle and really um, sort of circumnavigate their physical and emotional addictions. Mm -hmm. And I did all of that. And then it had to become a thing, a behemoth. I had to leverage. I had to scale. And that side of things bores me, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not interested in making money. I mean, money's great, you know, but I'm not interested in, in that side of things. So it was time for me to move on and I'd already developed, you know, an interest in reframing anxiety outside of the mm. medical model because I think I read that, you know, anxiety had only entered the DSM, the main manual for diagnosing uh, various diseases in the Western world, um, in 1980. And I was like, oh, okay. So my entire life almost I've grown up with this assumption that anxiety is a medical problem. What was it beforehand? And then I have to go and ask the questions and then I keep going. And, you know, first we make the beast beautiful, which came out of that. That took me seven years, you know. I mean, some people say overnight sensation. I'm like, no. A lot of bloody nights. Yeah. So um, it might look like I've done a lot, but 
Yeah, and I, and I see them all as um, sort of one building on the next, on the mm. next, you know. So, um, but I I have to feel into things. I have to almost smell where the pain point is for the humans around me. And once it gets loud enough in in my being, I'm like, is there anyone? going to talk about this is there anyone who's going to write about it in a way that makes us feel less alone well I'll give it a go you know it's that it's that kind of flopping into it I suppose mm-hmm. flopping in but then absolutely taking it by the horns and diving as deeply as you possibly could you're notorious for your ability to research meticulously um oh thank you for saying that yeah I I you know I'm a trained journalist and I could not put something else something out there into the world um, unless I had really looked into it and was willing to be wrong you know like you can't research everything and and new information comes to light so um, you know you get trained in all of that and I I suppose I am proud of that especially in a world where there's a lot of people out there making a lot of um, noise and opining with really no buttressing. Mm, yeah yeah no foundations to hold up their um, mouthy opinions. Um, you gave everything that you made through I Quit Sugar away. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, it's it's got a bit of a story. I'll have to take a couple of minutes to explain it. Um, so when I uh, when I finished up at MasterChef and, and and Cosmo and that entire world, I got very very sick and um, an autoimmune disease, and I was also um, quite suicidal. I'd had a few suicide attempts, and there was one moment where. It was that moment, you know, and I write about this in my book um, and it, where essentially the upshot is, sorry to give away the ending, I decided to live. <laughs> um, but it was a very ending. I'm yeah, glad you yeah, right. I don't know if you'd worked it out for yourselves. Um, mm, yeah, it but uh, I, I, it was a very conscious decision and the decision came about because I was like I felt I'd explored every single op- option that I could and I could not see a way out of the headspace that I was in, the stuckness. And then in this kind of 11th hour moment, I went, oh, hang on, there's one option I haven't looked into, and that is just shedding everything like, and going back out into the world with just the clothes on my back and I, and I do it without being attached. I let go of all of the things that I've been attached to. Like I just go my way with my values. And that sounds very Pollyanna-ish, but it's exactly what went through my head. And I, it really hit me, penny drop, oh shit, there is that, there is that last final option. Mm. And so it was, and and then all these serendipitous things happened. Like, I'm not joking. um, A few hours later, Kerri Ann Kenley rings and asks me to fill in for her while she goes on holiday. Like, the following Tuesday, and I'm like, I've never hosted a TV show before. I didn't even know Carrie Ann Kenley. I'd been a guest on her show talking bikini fashions or something when I was the editor of Cosmo. Um, but anyway, so that was bizarre, and I've no memory. Anyway, you know, lots of things happened off the back of this decision, and essentially, I was being tested. You know, like, will you go back and get stuck into it? Mm-hmm. And when I started up um, shortly, not long after the I Quit Sugar kind of thing. I started to make a bit of money. I got an accountant. He said, whiteboard, texter, what's your five-year goal? I said, I don't have one. He said, make one up. I said, all right, in five years, I want to ensure that I don't get caught up I, I, and I want to have made enough money to be able to live off the minimum wage CPI'd until I'm 94. And 
then when I reach that point, anything I make on top of that, well, I'll sort of, I'll do projects that matter. I won't be beholden to money. And he says, that's a great one. You know, anyway, five years to the day, he rings me, or five years to the week it was. And he said, hey, you've reached a goal. And I was like, really? Okay. And he said, now what? And I said, we sell the lot and give it away. Like, I'm here. I've done, you know, I've got to live out the promise I made to myself because mm. it's almost like, it's not that I was spooked, but I, I really do believe in, in making commitments. It's bit, and, it's and it's bloody brave, brave though. It's bloody courageous not to continue down the, the wormhole and continue to um, stick to something that you made yourself so many years earlier. The world had changed significantly in the time that you'd started until the time that you decided to opt out and your identity was formed around that. Was it really a bit scary to go away from that identity? I'd done it a couple of times before though, you see. So I'd quit Cosmo and everyone went, nobody quits that job. Mm. Like, and this was at the peak of magazines. They were starting to go downhill. Mm. Um, and it's the same with MasterChef. Nobody quits a job that every, you know, every host mm. Highly sought after. Yeah. Um, so I'd done that a few times and I suppose it's a little bit like Steve Jobs in his Stanford commencement address. He refers to this and I've quoted it a few times, so sorry if anyone's heard me say it before, but I think it's really a really a really good sort of wisdom. He sort of talks about how, you know, when you're a certain, when you're young, everything you do looks like crazy dots on the page and there's no storyline. You kind of feel, and that was very much the case for him because remember he dropped out of university and then he sat in on graphic design classes and he didn't know why, like, what am I doing? You know, he's sort of flopping around the place and experimenting with gurus and all kinds of things. And um, he said, it's not until you get enough, old enough that you can look back and see those dots actually form a path mm. you know mm-hmm. um and I think that that's what had happened with me is I'd had enough moments where I had destroyed my ego I'd, I'd literally trod it into the ground and I only grew and got more abundance from it each and every time so I sort of got the hang of it I got the hang of that trick you know that all the spiritualists talk about like I'd gone well, there amazing skill Oh, I was lucky to be thrust into that lesson and I was thrust into it time and time again and eventually I went, hey, why don't we get artful with this? Why don't you actually kind of own it? Yeah. 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 Own it and drive it. But I've still got to do it, Jade. I still get caught up. I'm caught up at the moment. You know, I get my grubby little fingers on things and I want to control and I want to get certainty and I and I want to mm. look successful and be successful and, and get all the accolades. When I say accolades, I mean I want to get paid for, for work that I'm doing. Um, and every time that I release my grip and let the flow of life come back in, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it works and I have to remind myself of it. And I'm going through a bit of a time at the moment where I'm, all right, time to release the grip again, time to let life flow again. And yeah, you're holding tighter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, breathe out. Hey, tell me about wild activism. What is it? Yeah, well, look, activism um, for me is something that I almost feel is a, a responsibility, of, you know, that you, you've got to take on um, mm. in the current age. Like too much is being taken away from us, too much, not control, but too much of our agency I prefer the word agency yeah, yeah. To, and to you know like AI is happening and nobody these big, big tech bros they didn't come to us and go hey world let's have a discussion about this do we want it would you like us to develop this technology that will eventually take over your jobs your minds it will potentially even take over the whole of you know the human species 
should we have a discussion? Nobody came and asked us. Um, And so we have to fight for, for, to maintain some kind of ethical grounding, you know. So the other aspect to all of this, which I learned once I got engaged and enraged about things, is that, you know, so much of the fear and um, unhappiness and anxiety that exists today, particularly anyone who's alive to the climate crisis, is around our sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And, um, you know, what we need to do, and and these are not my words, these are people who have been in this space for a long time, what they say is if the best salve is to turn your anxiety into action. And it really is true. You know, humans, we we like to be engaged, you know. We we, want to be out there doing the hard things. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that tells us discomfort's a bad thing. Um, Inconvenience is a bad thing. But you know what makes us the happiest? It's doing the stuff, you know, like it's doing stuff, fixing things, attending, fending, being agile. Um, And yet we're just told all of that's removed. You know, we live a a, a sort of a, a diet version of things. So, you know, dating someone, the dating scene, you know, the old school going up to somebody and asking them out is terrifying and uncomfortable. And so what did we do? We removed that and we took it online so that you didn't have to do all of that stuff. And, of course, we're we're completely unsatiated. Sex, sex is messy and noisy and awkward and all of that kind of thing. So what did we do? Ah, porn. So we take all of the discomfort out of things and what we're left with, we're left with the diet um, low-calorie version of everything. When are we going to get that it's work, engagement, fighting, rising up, putting skin in the game that makes us feel human and makes us feel like we're really living a life? Yeah, we're alive and we're breathing deeply. Mm. Yeah, it gives us the satisfaction that we can't imagine. Was it you that said lighting the way back to a life we love? Mm. is where we need to be. I don't know why I've got this note written down here, but let me ask you anyway. How do we (laughs) like the way back to the way we love? Where do we begin with that? We tend to save things that we really love. You know those stories of those miracle stories of the 50-kilo mother who can lift a car that's rolled over her toddler? You know? I don't don't know that, but yes. But we find this Herculean strength when we really care about things, you know. And I use the example in one of my books about, um, you know, football matches, you know, like the losing sides down and all of a sudden there's this glint in their eye and they're like, no, this game's not over. It's 30 seconds before the end of the game and they get this kamikaze energy and they break all the rules and, you know, what do you know, they plant the winning goal or whatever it is, kick the winning goal, plant the winning try. And um, so there's that capacity in us. We will we will fight for things that we truly love. So what I tried to do in this book, this one wild and precious life, is to get is to really start to have a discussion around what we truly love, what really matters to us. And it is nature. It is our connection with nature. And you know, we talk a lot about loneliness. And in fact, it, the loneliness isn't a loneliness between myself, say, and other people. Because we are more connected, we are bombarded with more. Unless you are somebody who's, you know, really disadvantaged, you've got some kind of handicap, you can't leave the house, the elderly, you know, they legitimately don't have enough people in their lives. The real loneliness I feel that we're feeling and the one that really eats away at us is our loneliness from ourselves and from our part in the matrix of life. 
you know, in the the, the network, the flow. We feel dis- disconnected from that and that is a far more painful loneliness. So we need to go and reconnect with that and, you know, my book talks through a whole range of techniques for that and they're not complicated and they're mostly free. Yeah, yeah, which is which aligns perfectly with future studying. So talk to us about your sense of obligation and reciprocity to the world that you are living in. And I don't just mean kind of the broader world. I feel like everything that you put out there is a gift to the world and they can take that, have an opinion about it, chew it up, spit it out or be inspired by it and that's you know, your open gift and willingness to, to sort of brave other people's opinion. But I mean in your everyday immediate community what do I do like Mm. mm, well it's sort of funny um I kind of worry that I'm a bit of a selfish person um but then I sort of I comfort myself you know at three o'clock in the morning when that realization really eats away at me um because I don't have children well I foster children I foster indigenous kids and I've done that for four years um but, you know, I don't have children. I live a pretty um, selfish life. I, I can do what I want. I work from home. I don't have, you know. So I sometimes wonder about it. But then I, I go, well, some of, some people are really great at that kind of thing. I'm actually, I think my service is better served by writing or, you know, maybe maybe what you're saying is true, you know, saying the stuff that other people want to say but maybe uh, game enough to or whatever. I, I offer that service. The calling out of elephants in the room. How did you get into fostering? Oh, well, again, that's another story. Um, I had a a bumpy um, journey in and around motherhood. I was told because of my autoimmune disease that I'd never be able to have children. Um, It turns out that that was not quite right. Uh, And so, you know, years later, after my peak um, fertility kind of period, um, I got pregnant at 42 I then had a series of miscarriages, but um, one little one uh, got mercury poisoning, another one tied herself in a knot, and that was a really big journey of getting sperm donors from Denmark implanted in me in Crete and all kinds of adventures, right? And um, Good lens. Yeah, so eventually the final pregnancy, and I fell pregnant every single time um, with no IVF, blah, 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 it just, you know, it happened um, almost to sort of, I don't know, buck, whatever, the, the prediction that the doctors had given me in my mm-hmm. early 30s. Um, so the final pregnancy was when I was 46 and um, turning 47 and it was a strong pregnancy and I got very sick. Um, my bipolar flared horribly. My autoimmune disease just flared and I just knew I wouldn't be able to actually, I might be able to get through the pregnancy and having the child and so on, but I wouldn't be able to do anything else. Like, um, and I had to have a very, you know, a really harsh reckoning and go, okay, what have you, what do you feel your dharma is? Why are you here? Where, where are you better placed? Bringing up one child or doing other things? And I mean, I don't mean to sound like I've got a messiah complex, but by this stage, I'd worked out I can write stuff that other people feel makes other people feel heard and feel less alone and feel engaged and activated, you know, um, yeah, on a small scale. We live in a small, you know, in Australia and, and so on. But um, so I made a very difficult decision to terminate that pregnancy um, and I was like, well, I can't leave that there. I, I need to ensure that I almost <sighs> compensate or, you know, and so I went, right, I'll foster children and, you know, Indigenous children because 
half of the foster kids in Australia are Indigenous and it's, you know, a legacy of the stolen generation horribleness, um, but also just the technicalities involved in the foster care system in around Indigenous kids that are very, they're a bit particular. So that's what I, I started doing. So I'm a respite carer, but invariably the kids who are needing respite are in some sort of trouble and they end up staying for quite a time. So I've had a little girl who's nine. I've had her since Christmas. Um, she just left on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's a it's a you odd business. touch with them? Yeah, I do. I do sort of. I mean, remember they're young kids and also technically you're not meant to, um, you know, for security reasons. But there's one teenager who was with me during COVID. She was with me for nine months. Um, she reaches out to me. It's, it's awkward for her. She will only do it through um, VMs you know, doesn't want to actually pick up and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I I actually used to look after a girl when I was 30 and she was 15. She was, no, I first met her when she was 13 and I was 30 and we've stayed in touch ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a big sister, little sister arrangement and mm-hmm. we got very close. She landed in some trouble. She used to come and stay with me and then um, we've stayed, yeah, I would sort of, we'd reach out to each other quite regularly when she's in Australia. She ended up having, yeah, landing on her feet and turning into this incredible young woman who's now got her own daughter and uh, or son, wow. I should say, and, yeah, yeah. Wow. You have, and you touched on it just before, and um, you talk openly about your bipolar, but you also talk openly about anxiety. And I feel like anxiety is something that um, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, touches nearly every one of us at some point. It might be induced by a particular situation or you might be inflicted with it more regularly than that for whatever reason. Have you done that to demystify or to offer solidarity or is it, has it been more of a personal opportunity to, to really um, self-deprecate because I, I don't suspect that you're that kind of person at all, but just just to level and be really real and raw and honest. Yeah, that's a great way of phrasing the question. It's really all of those things. Mm. Um, yeah, it is all of those things, but it is also to keep myself real. It's a bit like, you know, you write a book called I Quit Sugar. It pretty much means you're not going to eat a Mars bar in public anytime soon. You know, it holds you to account. <laughs> and so I think I wrote a book about my anxiety in part because this culture was starting to emerge. This is, you know, the book came out, I'm trying to think now, was it 2017? Um, I think that, I think that's right, maybe it was 2019, I can't remember now, but a culture was emerging where I felt that more and more people, it was becoming destigmatized, but it was running the risk of people actually collapsing into the label. Um, so, and I also was aware, you know, I only know about it because I was witnessing it in myself. Oh yeah, I've got anxiety, I've got bipolar. And what you can often do is that actually can give you a leave pass from taking responsibility. And so what I wanted to do was, was, uh, really get real with myself and my books, I take myself on the journey and I write about it. And you sort of, the reader comes on the journey in real time with me as I discover these things. It's a little bit of an artifice, but in, it is also true. I, that's how I, I research the books. I obviously have to muddle things around when it comes to writing it and, and placing the chapters in the right order. But um, I, I, fe- I felt that I 
there was a responsibility. There's a calling that comes with certain conditions um, and it's not enough and you're doing a disservice to the human race if you just kind of go and smother yourself in platitudes and excuses and, um, you know, exemption from PE notes kind of thing. So with four I, signatures. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I sort of, I think there's a double-edged sword, you know, and I describe this in the, um, in the book. Having an anxious disorder is like carrying a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of your life right? If you're irresponsible, it'll get wobbly. It'll start sloshing from side to side and you invariably slosh it all over everybody, you know, your loved ones, people in the workplace. And you spend a lot of your energy going back to source, having to fill it all up again, start the whole trek out there into the world again. It's tedious. It's a waste of your time on this planet. So it is actually a responsibility to steady yourself. Yeah, there's going to be you know, some ups and downs, but you, it's a responsibility that you've got to carry for the rest of your life um, if you have a mental, you know, um, condition. And, um, you know, the other side of it is also accepting that, hey, it's also an incredible superpower, you know. Um, you can care a lot, you know. It, it, it keeps you very hypervigilant and hypersensitive. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's a discussion that needs to be had in even more depth. I was, I could only find very basic science around this, around the evolutionary purpose of anxiety, and particularly things like obsessive compulsive disorder and bipolar, mm. where Diane Fosey did uh, work on chimps in the 70s, where she removed the chimps that possessed these traits that resembled OCD and sort of bipolar, um, you know, uh, incredible sensitivity to sounds and smells and um these chimps were awake all night jittery on the outskirts of the clan had no mates blah 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 when she removed them the clan died out in under three months i think it was and that's because these are the chimps that heard the tiger approaching in the middle of the night and told the clan could smell when there's a poisonous berry and went keep away from it guys and you know were awake to hear the danger mm-hmm. and so you know, throughout history, um, something like 70% of scientists and poets were bipolar. Um, similar statistics for the number of wartime, successful wartime leaders, such as Winston Churchill. He was a terrible peacetime, um, you know, prime minister, but incredible during the war. And so it's like there's this evolutionary quirk that exists that's, you know, being bestowed on certain people. And I think it's a gift and we all as a culture need to recognise that. And as individuals, it can come as a real relief to go, ah, this makes sense. This is my but, Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and, but then on top of that is a responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. you don't then, you know, sort of use it as a way to get out of responsibilities or to excuse bad behaviour. I mean, you know, People with bipolar are notoriously difficult to deal with, and but it's your gig, your responsibility to ensure you don't splash that water all over everybody, um, and that's that's just the deal, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I think I sort of go and explore these things for that reason. I want to I want to have a reckoning with myself, mm-hmm. and um, but it's mostly really, if I'm to be honest, I can smell something in the zeitgeist. I smell it, I can, I, I agonise and feel deep pain for strangers around me, 
you know, I, I, and I, I find that un, unbearable that, you know, I get emotional whenever I talk about this kind of thing because I'm sort of feeling where humans are at the moment. Um, and, I, and I just want to find a through line, you know. I want to find mm. the path that we can sort of walk together for a bit. Mm. And not just yeah. for, you, for you but for everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what are you finding at the moment? Mm. Oh, I think we're exceedingly upset about the fact that we can't communicate that the messages aren't getting through. There's all this dissonance. There's, you know, there's polarity. Um, I think that's it. I think the gender stuff is really, um, especially young people, I think, uh, oh, my goodness, boys are lost. Mm. I think so lost. And I think the girls are um, disappointed, feel let down. And I think that's also the case for adult men and women. There's a massive disconnect. Um, yeah, I think adult men are lost. I think they don't know their place. Um, and, of course, you have the Andrew Tates and everybody stepping in to blame it on feminism. Mm. Um, and um, I think the women, I think women feel let down by contemporary masculinity. Mm. It's like, you know, where are you? <laughs> We've, yeah. you know, our foremothers, you know, trained us to step up and and to question the gender roles and to expand and be more. And unfortunately, it did translate as we had to do it all. That was a, sort of a misfiring of the message. But we've done all this work and we've, you know, managed to get these wins and it's been great. And then we're like, hang on, dudes, we thought you were doing the same thing over there. Yeah. What yeah, have you been you doing go? all this time? Where'd you go? Yeah, like, hang on, we're here and we've got nobody to to look across to, eye to eye, and go, you know, let's enjoy this together. So, um, yeah, that's a big thing and it's playing out horrifically, um, I think. Um, and then, of course, there's this just, you know, elephant in the room, existential risk, you know, um, AI, all of it, all mm. of the stuff. And it's too much and we're not attending to it. We're not getting through the, the agenda items in the right order. Mm. And we go to each day, we wake up thinking, yes, and then we go to bed and we go, eh, I just spent two hours on my phone flicking through Instagram, um, you know. Yes, it sucks even the best of us in. I want to ask you a little bit about that. <coughs> you know, you are high energy and we've talked about the fact that some people think you're intense. There's a lot to be done in the world and you you have this sensorial awareness of the world around you and so you actually can't ignore it even if you want to because it'll, mm. it'll find its way into your psyche through one of your senses how do you balance that how are you finding um time that allows you to be responsible with your health realities and the fact that there is a lot to do and it's going to find you and tell you about it whether you like it or not how are you yeah. getting through that yeah, it's it's a to and fro and um it's an imprecise formula and I over overdo it one way and I keep trying to correct it. Um as a day-to-day -day thing, being in nature, so hiking, camping, that kind of thing, um, I'm overdue for it. There have been that many bloody floods and bushfires and the rest, right? Um so it's just, you know, that's been frustrating. I haven't been able to go to my go-to fix. Mm -hmm. Um, but really it is as, as simple as if I have got myself really wound up and I'm too scared to catch up with people because I 
don't know what my impact on them is going to be. I just get on a train and I take off and I hike for, you know, six, seven hours and I come home and that's generally generally enough or I'll go and camp one or two nights and it, I'm fixed, mm-hmm. you know. Like it's, it really is as simple as that um, for me. Um, but, yeah, I it's a really big acceptance process that there is no right way to do this. This is uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a phrase um, that sort of I bring into the last part of my book. I ask the question, you know, what is left if we lose it all? Mm-hmm. If we were to lose it all, what in the final wash-up really matters to us, right? And so I try to keep alive to that. And it's a question I ask myself constantly. I, like, I get into bed and I'm dissatisfied and I'm itchy about things and I just have to keep asking myself, okay, what is it that really matters, you know? And, um, you, you know, I have I have different answers to that question, but I have to, I, I really then make my, I, I really try to tilt back to what my answer is. My answer is generally, you know, we've got to also enjoy, you know, like what we have been given here. So that's why my book is called This One Wild and Precious Life, you know, We've got to save it, but we're also going to have to live the fuck out of it, right? That's our duty. And the latter is the way that we can do the former. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the circular argument. And I can't find a better formula. I've tried and I've looked into it, but I think that's that's as and and I think the spiritualists and the philosophers over the years, you know, it speaks to that message essentially. Mm. A slightly different way of asking it, and maybe I'll get a slightly different answer, is for you, how much is enough? Do you mean do you mean material possessions or money or I, I mean that really. I mean the the bigger picture of what enough looks like for you. For some people, or another way of asking it is what does success look like? Okay. Um, oh, look, my hunger is it will always be with me. So I, I don't think I'll or ever arrive. I, I remember once somebody wrote to me in very early days, it was Twitter, I think, it was before Instagram. They went, Sarah, you're all striving, no arriving. And I went, how do you know me so well? Who are you? Who is this person? But it's <laughs> well, true. Were they right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, the striving, the fighting, the having the moral wrestle, the not knowing, the finding the the next solution, that's the point. So, um, yeah, I – and so maybe that's why I get rid of um, the material possession part of the equation because it complicates things, you know. Um, Yeah. And it's just so obviously not even a stop-off point. Like it's not even a, a, a station in my railway trip, you know. Um, How do you avoid the noise that tells you it should be a station? It should be a stopping all stations all the time. That is the mainstream narrative. So how do you avoid that noise? You don't go to the shops. Then you don't get the messages. When you don't buy shit, you don't get the messages on your iPhone. Like it's as simple as that. I mean, I buy things. I have to. Like I've got to be in the world. I've got to go and I've got a sort of a, a drawer that has my outfit for public speaking jobs and and things, you know. But um yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think it's it's practice. It's just another muscle, right? Like the less I've needed it, the less I need it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I think that's probably it. Like yeah. just start and it becomes quite addictive. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, given that you are all striving, what are you striving for next? Oh, um, I can only ever answer the question so honestly. I would love to have a big, <laughs> a, a big love relationship, um, you know, like I feel like my personal growth has has stalled because I think sometimes you do need a really good counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, um, good, strong masculinity is mm-hmm. is really what I'm needing to get the best wrestle out of myself, you know, mm-hmm. and to grow. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, sadly, devastatingly, I just haven't met that level of masculinity where I feel like, yeah, you're an appropriate you can hold wrestle me. partner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, let me see. What else? Um, I, I, I want to have more ro- – I, I, I want to actually have uh, meetings with uh, really like-minded people, people that I can actually look up to. Um, I, I need to do some reaching. So, you know, part of my thing at the moment is to actually start to associate with and, re- you know, um, women in particular who are an echelon above me you know, mm-hmm. so that I can learn from them. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I'm not challenged enough um, intellectually and spiritually, you know, mm-hmm. and psychologically. So there's a bit of that. Um, yeah, and I think I also need to get out there and explore in the world again. Um, you know, y- you do need to meet the humans. You need to have that engagement to get the, the good stuff. So I am actually going to be moving overseas. Oh, where are you um, going? To answer the the two other things that I feel are missing in my life, you know, masculinity uh, that can is robust and not all about double shuckers and uh, salty margaritas and tacos and banter. Um, I oh Paris mm-hmm. at this stage, okay, yeah. for an unidentified yeah. amount of time, just going to see what it looks like. Yeah, I think I imagine what will happen because. I'm very connected. I, I love the actual land in Australia. Mm. I love the nature and I'm drawn back to it and of my family. You know, I'm very, very close to all of my siblings, although they're spread out around the world as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I imagine it'll be sort of six to nine months overseas mm. and then back here. Um, and, yes, there's the carbon miles, but my aim is just to do the trip once mm-hmm. a year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um and then Paris, because it's a train ride to most of the places I need to go to to interview the people I want to interview for my next book and for the podcast and for the journey I want to keep going on. Mm-hmm. Before we sign off, can we just go back to the very first thing that I uh, said at the very beginning, and that's that many of us are in a state of spiritual PTSD. How do we navigate out of this? Because I agree wholeheartedly. Mm. I don't know that I have the answer because I'm still trying to find it. Mm. Um, I think there's some things that do work. I think returning to our humanity is the overarching theme. Um, Humanity um, and our humaneness. So things like curiosity and kindness um, as, you know, they're not motherhood statements. There's science that now shows that engaging in those emotions actually take us to a connected feeling and a a congruence in our brain. I think, yeah, I think it's actually an undoing that we need to do. Mm-hmm. We need to actually, um, it's like unlearn. wrong, yeah, unlearn. There's mm-hmm. a wrong way go back sign in front of us. We know it, right? And we keep, we just keep. We're ignoring it. We're ignoring it. We're just travelling mm-hmm. even faster towards it because we don't know how to stop. And it's a great freedom. It's a great release um, to buck the system. 
and and really it's it's a rebellious act you know mm. but um it doesn't have to be it, it, we've been so sucked into this this idea that capitalism and the system is is just the way and you know doing something otherwise is what communist you know and it's like no 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 it's it's actually thinking it's actually going is this serving us like we shouldn't be serving the system We've got to work out if this is the system that's for us that can actually preserve our humanity. Um, so I think I, I think being in nature works. I think that uh, practicing uh, really humane ethical things, going back to some of the principles of the spiritualists and what religion has always preached before it gets corrupt um, and starts doing horrible stuff with children, um, and then. Um, I would also say soul nerding. You know, I write about this in my book. Soul nerding is studying the works of wonderful minds, generous spirits who recorded their thoughts in similarly troubled times. Mm -hmm. And they're all the big writers, you know, and I soul nerd them by reading the biographies or be reading their actually their, their works, you know, their literature, and um, that can make us feel less alone and get us back on track. What a cracker of a way to rap. Sarah, you are a gem. I have to say I might have to pop you in my ears in the paddock and listen to that a few more times. There was a whole lot in there and she touches on all of those human foibles with such confidence and ease that it's quite, I'm sure you find it too, it's quite inspiring. As always, thanks for sticking us in your ears. We're back next week now that we're running with weekly pods. If you feel like these pods uh, floating your boat and you'd like to hear more of them and would like to send a shout of thanks in our direction we have two ways to do that one of them is through buy me a coffee the link are in the show notes and the other one is a more um, month by month or subscriptive approach and that's through patreon again the link to that is in the notes it's as always a pleasure to be here it was certainly a pleasure to have that conversation with Sarah have a bloody great week guys we'll see you next week Go gently.